All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. That is Mark 13, 24 through 27. Uh, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we are in our sixth week of the Olivet Discourse. And for some of you, this is the week that you've been waiting for. Uh, this morning, we come to what many believe is one of the most difficult portions of the discourse for the interpretation that I've been advocating these past five weeks. Um, just uh, by way of reminder, I've been teaching a partial preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. Preterism simply means pastism, um, means that a, a prophecy has been fulfilled in our past. So when it was given, it was future, but now for us, it's past because it's already been fulfilled. And with regard to the Olivet Discourse, partial preterism means that the discourse has been fulfilled up to verse 30 in the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans. But in the text before us, there is some strong language that to many, even most modern readers, sounds like the end of the world. Uh, some of you are already reading ahead. I, I see. Bear with me. We're going to get there. And so, in light of some of the language in this text, that many have interpreted these verses to be a reference to the bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of history. There is, there is what I call cosmic language in our text this morning. There's talk about the sun and moon not giving their light, and the stars falling from heaven. And then there's language about Jesus sending forth his angels to gather his elect from all around the world. And because of this kind of language, many people automatically assume that it has to do with the end of the world. And I get that. I get it. Right? I'm not mocking anyone for that. If these verses are taken in isolation and removed from their overall context, they sound like a reference to the end of the world. I think that that's a fair thing to admit. And, and most of us have had our minds conditioned by dispensationalism and the Left Behind books and movies like A Thief in the Night and all that. So whenever we hear the kind of language in this passage, we instinctively think that it's about the end of the world. I personally believe that many think this way because... To be honest, most of us are not very familiar with the Old Testament. Most of us aren't very familiar with it. Particularly, most of us are not very familiar with Old Testament prophetic language and prophetic symbolism. Uh, but keep this in mind. Jesus' original audience, his disciples that he was speaking to in the Olivet Discourse, they're Jews. They're not Gentiles, they're Jews, and they would have been very familiar with this language. And Jesus' words in these verses are packed full of Old Testament prophetic language. Uh, and I believe that once we see where Jesus is getting his language from, the meaning of his words will become incredibly clear uh, and simple to us. So, so then, as I've been doing throughout this uh, chapter, I plan on showing you how the words of Jesus were indeed about the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, but that's not all that I want to show you. Uh, as I've said, and I'm sure some of you... Uh, Maybe you already know what I'm going to say. Uh, there are beautiful things in this passage. Every one of these judgment texts, there's still something beautiful contained in it. Uh, there are horrifying things for those who do not trust in and do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those of us who do love him and trust in him, there are beautiful things for us to see this morning. This text teaches us to fear the judgment of Christ, but it also reminds us that Jesus has been enthroned that he is Lord of all, 
and that he will save all of his people, his elect, from every corner of the earth, and that we, his church, those who believe on him, are that people, are his people. There are many things in this text that cause us to bow down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and I hope by God's grace to show you some of those things this morning and lead you to worship him through the text. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the, in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are excited for what you have for us in your word. Your word is truth and we have assembled to be instructed in the truth and changed by it as your spirit works through it. But God, we have not only come together to learn, we've come to worship. And your word leads us to worship. And so we ask that you would reveal wondrous things to us in your law, in your word. Lead us to worship. Lead us to stand in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us a sight of him in his glory as king that knocks us to the ground in worship. Glorify yourself in us today, triune God. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. I also want to take a moment and mention that this is a very strange first sermon for Jericho to hear. Let's just all admit that right up front. I'm very glad to have you guys. Um, but to begin, we, we will consider the context of our passage. Uh, and, and while this is always important to do, it is especially important for us to do this morning because these three verses are the verses that people say have to be about the end of the world. So we're going to review the context of the Olivet Discourse. Right? Uh, if we for, and, I, and I want to do that, I want to take a minute and do that, because if we forget the context of the Olivet Discourse, we will think that Jesus is talking about things that he absolutely is not, and we will miss the point. Right? You don't want to be one of those Christians right, that quotes from Philippians, I can do all things in Christ or through Christ who strengthens me, and they think that means they can hit a home run. Context matters. Right? We don't want to be one of those. I'm not saying they're not Christians, I'm saying they don't read the Bible well. Right, so we're going to read the Bible better than that this morning with the Olivet Discourse. So with context, first, remember, Jesus has been, throughout the Gospel of Mark, throughout his entire earthly ministry, Jesus has been constantly challenged and rejected by the rulers, rather the religious rulers of Israel. Since chapter 3 in Mark's Gospel, they've been trying to find a way to kill him. They've debated with him publicly. They've tried to catch him in his words. They've tried to arrest him. They've tried to find charges to have him arrested and executed, right, all throughout, right up, to, up through chapter 12 of Mark, right before the Olivet Discourse begins. Another thing to establish context, Jesus has worked miracles that symbolize the national judgment of Israel that's coming. Remember the, the withered fig tree? The fig tree represented Israel. Christ cursed it because it didn't bear fruit. This is a, 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 a 
miraculous parable, you could say. It's a, a parable in a miracle. Jesus has also done physical acts that symbolize God's anger with Israel. He has, at this point in his earthly ministry, cleansed the temple twice. God is angry with Israel because they're profaning his worship and judgment comes for idolatry. Jesus has also told judgment parables against Israel. Remember the parable of the wicked tenants in Mark chapter 12. Uh, Jesus has told parables about how God is going to punish the nation for rejecting Jesus. Right, So the judgment of Israel for their rejection of the Son of God has been hanging over them for quite some time. Right, At least when you look at the gospel narrative as a whole, their judgment is impending. And all that leads us, leads us up to Mark chapter 13, verse 2. And there, Jesus, as he is leaving the temple for the final time, having interacted with the religious leaders of Israel, he says, do you not see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus prophesies that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And why will it be destroyed? Because the Jews have rejected the Messiah when he came to them. God's going to judge them. And in response to this shocking prophecy, some of the disciples come to Jesus in verse 4, and they ask him this, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, in the context that that verse comes in, Jesus has only been talking about one thing, the destruction of the temple. Right? That, that, that's it. And so when the disciples are, are asking him a question, they're asking about the destruction of the temple. They want to know when it will happen and what the sign will be that it's about to happen. Again, the destruction of the temple is the only thing in the context that they could be asking about. To deny that is to bring something into the text that Mark has not let us know at all that they were thinking. So again, Jesus' words in verse 2, prompt the question in verse 4. And then verse 5 kicks off Jesus' answer to the question. So the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple kicks off the entire Olivet Discourse. And Jesus is answering in verses 5 through 30. He's answering the question, when and what will be the sign? And that brings us, lastly, to verse 30 itself. All right, the time text of the Olivet Discourse. And there Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation means this generation, right? There's no Greek trick there for you. This generation means this generation. It's the generation then living when Jesus spoke. That is how this phrase is consistently used throughout the Gospels. So he's talking about the people that he's talking to right then. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And all these things refer to what? All the things that he's been talking about since verse 5. All these things are going to happen within that generation. Jesus is very clear about that. And those things have to do with what? The destruction of the temple that he prophesied in verse 2. And what the sign will be and when it will take place that the, the, uh, that the disciples asked, asked to see. They asked, for the, they asked those questions. Jesus has been answering that up through verse 30. And he says, all these things will take place in this generation. All right. So Jesus has given us our interpretive grid. Everything he says in verses 5 through 30 was to be fulfilled within the lives of the generation that he was then speaking to. And that was in the first century. So with that said, let's dig into our text now. By the way, I know that's like the fourth time that I've ran through all that material with you. You probably won't forget it. 
I hope you don't forget it whenever you read the Olivet Discourse yourself. I hope it bothers you, right? So, yeah, that's why I've been doing this. I've been playing mind games with you all. I want it to get stuck in your head. Um, the context is important. So let's dig into our text now. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, we're going to stop there. This is important stuff. But in those days, what days? What days? Well, looking at what comes before this verse, Jesus is speaking of the days that he began to talk about in verse 14. He's speaking of the time period when the abomination of desolation will surround Jerusalem. And if you weren't here for the abomination of desolation sermon, you say, what is that? Don't worry. Uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 20 tells us, when you see the, Ro when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, right? These are the Roman armies that would surround Jerusalem during the Jewish war. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what the abomination of desolation is. These are the days, but in those days, these are the days when the Christians are to get out of Jerusalem and run to the hills of Judea where they will be saved from the Roman slaughter. That's what Jesus says in verse 14. Flee to the hills of Judea. Right? So this isn't a national thing he's talking, or rather an international thing. This is a regional thing in Israel. Run to the hills of Judea. These are clearly the days of the Jewish war with Rome between 66 and 70 AD when Rome would come and ruin the city and the temple. Verse 19 even says, for in those days, and Jesus is referring to the days of war with Rome. Why am I drawing this out? Verse 24 is connected to what comes before it. There's no reason to disconnect it. Jesus has not changed topics. He's talking about the same thing. And then Jesus says, he says, but in those days, after that tribulation, well, what tribulation is he talking about? Right, right, the great tribulation is what everyone thinks of, right, this end times tribulation. Well, look at verse 19. It's the same tribulation he mentioned then. For in those days, that is days with war with Rome, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Jesus is talking about the tribulation or the time of distress, time of suffering for Israel that will come from war with Rome. He's talking about the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. And in verse 24, Jesus is talking about what will happen after that tribulation. In those days, after that tribulation, he's talking about what's going to immediately follow the Jewish war with Rome. And if you say, well, I don't know, it doesn't say, it doesn't say immediately after. It just says after. Well, Matthew 24, 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, etc. So Matthew corroborates what I'm saying here. Just as Mark says after that tribulation, Matthew says immediately after that tribulation. And Jesus is talking about what will take place after the war with Rome. Again, I'm making this point. You can't disconnect verse 24 from what comes before it. Our Lord has not switched topics, and there is nothing in the scriptures at this point, there is nothing in his words in verse 24 that signals that he has begun to speak of something other than the destruction of Jerusalem. If someone wants to say he's now talking about the end of the world, they have to, they have to impose that on the text because it's not in the text itself. He's talking about what, again, the context has not been broken at all. So then, bear with me, I know that's a lot. In these verses, this is important, this sets up the whole thing. 
But in those days after that tribulation, Jesus is telling us about the result of the Roman armies coming upon Jerusalem and waging war against the city. What he's going to talk about in verses 24 through 27, the, these things will be the result of this war. So Jesus is not talking about some future time thousands of years later. Again, the context hasn't changed. He's talking about the results of the Jewish war with Rome and Jerusalem being destroyed. So with the context even more firmly planted in our mind, let's look at verses 24 and 25 together. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Most Bible interpreters take this language to mean the end of the world. And we see how you might think that, don't we? Let's not make fun of anyone. This is devastating language. This is, as one commentator says, decreation language. Right? Just as God made the sun, moon, and stars, he is now putting them out. He's decreating them. And if taken literally, right, this would signal the end of the world, wouldn't it? If, if, if this is meant to be taken literally, that's the end of the world. The world, I'm not, I'm not really great at science. The world won't last very long without the sun. That's just from what I've read. We will die. Uh, right? Without the moon, the, the ocean goes out of control from what I understand. This is not good for us. If the sun and moon are out, we're dead. And uh, if the stars literally fall out of the heavens, they're going to collide with earth. We're in a lot of trouble. You ever seen the movie Armageddon? It's, it's like that. Right? There's something going to collide with the earth. We're all dead. So if interpreted in the most woodenly literal way, these verses would signal the end of the world. And they would also, catch this, they would also be predicting the end of the world in the first century, wouldn't they? Given the context of the chapter, the words of Jesus in verse 30, all these things will take place within this generation. So if this means the end of the world, that means Jesus was predicting the literal end of the world within the generation he was talking to. That would make him a false prophet. But I don't think we should interpret uh, these words in that literal of a way for two reasons. One, uh, Jesus is not a false prophet, right? The world obviously did not end in the first century or we would not be here. So Jesus must have meant something different. That's one. Two, the language of the Old Testament. And get ready. Get ready to turn to the Old Testament. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 13. The language of the Old Testament shows us how to properly understand the cosmic language of Jesus here. So what we're going to do now is we're going to let scripture interpret scripture. We're going to let clearer portions of scripture interpret more difficult portions of scripture, and we're going to see if this kind of language Jesus used is used elsewhere in the Bible and what it means in those places so that we can see how Jesus might be using it here. So brothers and sisters, this language of sun, moon, and stars not shining and being shaken and falling out of the sky and all the rest were used by Old Testament prophets fairly regularly. And when this language was used in the Old Testament, it symbolized the judgment of God on a nation or on a city. So I'm going to give you four examples. First, Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. This chapter begins in verse 1 by saying, The oracle or the burden concerning Babylon which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So what, has to, or what follows in Isaiah 13 
clearly has to do with the ancient capital city of Babylonia, right? Babylon. And then in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 13, we read this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. When God judged Babylon, Isaiah said that he would make the sun, moon, and stars not give their light. The sun, moon, and stars would not shine, and God would shake the heavens and the earth when he judged them. A second text, also in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 4 and 5. Here, you'll, you'll see in the text, God is talking about the nation of Edom. Isaiah 34, verses 4 through 5. All the host of heaven, all that, what, what are the hosts of heaven? Uh, uh, stars. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. So here God says that when he judges the nation of Edom, the stars, the host of heaven, are going to rot away, the skies will be rolled up like a scroll, and the host, the stars, are going to fall out of the sky. A third text, Ezekiel, chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. But first, verse 2, I want to establish the context of Ezekiel 32. Ezekiel 32, 2 says, Son of man, that's Ezekiel's nickname in this book, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, and then he goes on. So what follows in Ezekiel 32 concerns Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. And then in verses 7 and 8 we read, When I, so this is God's word to Pharaoh and Egypt, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. So when God's going to judge Pharaoh in Egypt, he's going to make the sun, moon, and stars not give their light, and the land of Egypt will be covered in darkness. A final one, and some of you say, why so many examples? Because I didn't believe this until I saw this many examples. That's why I'm doing this for you, so I'm sorry, but this is important. Joel chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 10 and 11 there. This prophecy in Joel, interestingly enough, actually has to do with Israel. Particularly, it has to do with Jerusalem. The first verse says, uh, 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 blow your trumpet in Zion. That's Jerusalem. So that's what it has to do with. And here, Joel is prophesying about a great army that would come against Jerusalem. And he says this, Joel 2, 10 and 11. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. 
He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So God was going to judge Israel by bringing an army against Jerusalem. And when he did so, the sun, moon, and stars would stop shining. Listen, if the above texts are to be understood literally, then the earth would have been physically destroyed thousands of years ago. Some, some of you are, are grinning. I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. If these texts are meant to be understood literally, we wouldn't exist. So start, again, this would destroy the whole planet. But since we're still here, I think we should understand this language differently. Or as I would say, properly. Brothers and sisters, this is prophetic judgment language. It's the language of decreation. It's the language of utter destruction. In this language, God is figuratively saying, the lights are going out on you. I'm taking away your light. And I read a commentary, and this did make me giggle. Uh, we, we have a saying similar to this in our day. I'm going to knock your lights out. You ever had your mom tell you that? Good times. <laughs> I'm going to knock your lights out. That's what God's saying here th through this decreation language, right? The lights are going out on you. What God is saying in these prophetic texts is that those who are being judged will be devastated. And notice this, with all four of those examples I gave you, and I think there were two or three more that I could have used, all of these passages were speaking about judgments in history on cities and nations, not at the end of time. None of them are about the end of the world. They are about times of judgment in history on geographical locations and peoples. Right? The cosmic language of these passages in the words of R.T. France, is used to describe how earth-shattering the effects of God's judgment will be. These judgments are, they have significant consequences on those whom God is judging. There's catastrophic results for the nations. And this language also highlights something theologically significant. I really appreciated this thought. These judgments are from God. This language of turning the sun, moon, and stars off is, 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 it shows that this judgment comes from God. What, where am I getting that from? Well, God is the creator of the sun, moon, and stars. He hung them where they are in the sky, and he causes them to shine. And he then, and only he, can make them cease to shine and fall from heaven. So these judgments, when God gives this language, he wants the people being judged. He wants them to know very clearly, these judgments are not coincidences of history, nor are they merely one nation coming against another for political gain or whatever. These are divine judgments. And God intends those being judged to see his hand of providence working against them to punish them. That's why he uses this language. So then in light of that, there is no reason for us to believe that these two verses in Mark must be referring to the end of the world. And given the context, verses 2 and 4 and verse 30 of Mark 13, I would argue we must not take them to be referring to the end of the world, unless you want to say Jesus was a false prophet. Rather, they are talking about the national judgment of Israel. God is taking their light away. But just consider this for a moment. I think Ken Gentry said this. If such language was appropriate to describe God's judgment on the pagans, how much more appropriate is it for God to use this language against Israel, who rejected his son? Catch this, Israel has become like Babylon. Israel has become like Edom and Egypt. They have become like the Gentiles. 
They have become idolaters and enemies of God who have incurred his wrath by rejecting the Lord of glory when he visited them. They're no different than the nations of the world. And listen, while the words of Jesus definitely came to pass when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, I think there's more to see here. There's a spiritual dimension to all of this that we're to understand. Theologically and covenantally, the nation is finished. God is destroying it. God is taking their light away. And, and, and re remember, I'm not, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. Remember, this is God's judgment. This is Jesus' judgment on the nation for rejecting him. In Matthew 23, when Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, your house is left to you desolate. What's he saying? This temple is not God's house anymore. This nation is not God's nation anymore. You have it. You wanted it. You didn't want the king when he came to you. It's yours now. God is washing his hands of this nation. Remember the parable of the wicked tenants. The, the wicked tenants who murdered the vineyard owner's son will be put to death. And then what happens? The vineyard will be given to another people who will give the owner the fruit that is due to him. What is that? The nation that kills the Son of God will be judged and killed by God, and then God will give the vineyard, his kingdom, to a people who will actually worship him, a.k.a. the world, the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, the judgment on Israel, or rather on Jerusalem, was God making it internationally known that Israel is no longer the covenant people of God. God has decreated the nation. And it no longer has any covenantal significance as a nation or ethnic people. Now hear me, some of you will say, well, Israel's a, a, a nation now. Sure, it is a nation with no covenantal significance. Like America. There's no covenantal significance. But why would God do this? Why would God take away their covenantal significance? Why would he decreate the nation that he made? Because a new covenant has come, and a new people has come, a new nation has come, as Peter says in 1 Peter. And hear me, only God can do this to Israel. I want to be very clear about this. I want you to see this is God's doing. The Roman armies destroying Jerusalem did not inherently dismantle the nation as a covenantal people. Why do I say that? Because it happened before, didn't it? In the Babylonian exile, Israel got absolutely ransacked, temple got burned down, the whole shebang, and the Jews remained God's people. They did. They did. But now this is different. The judgment in A.D. 70 that Jesus is prophesying was different from the Old Testament judgments on Israel in a big way. And hear me. The judgment that Jesus speaks of here has no promise for a restoration of national Israel. The Babylonian exile had promises of that all over the place, right? It, it seems like if you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and even the minor prophet, prophets, for every uh, wheel of woe, right, for every prophecy of judgment, there, there's another one that seems right after it. But God's going to bring you back into the land, and the Messiah will eventually come, and God will bless you with him. Is there anything like that in these prophecies? It's judgment. It's judgment on the nation. 
There is no promise of a restoration for the nation of Israel as God's covenant people. It's only judgment. In a monumental, unprecedented way for Israel, God is about to take their light away. They are no longer God's people. Why? Because they rejected Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They rejected God himself when he came to them. As John said in John 1, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Now I want to make an, an, a brief note here. Some people say that's anti-Semitic. No, it's not. Jesus said it, and he was a Jew. There's one. Two, this does not mean that there is no future for the ethnic descendants of Abraham. I won't give you an exposition of Romans 11, but read Romans 11. Paul tells us that before Christ comes, there will be great revivals, and the Jews will come into the church. Let me say it again. They will come into the church. There's not two peoples of God. There's not the church in Israel. No, they will come into the church. So there is a future for the Jews, but not with regard to the old covenant. They, like everyone else, by faith in Christ, must join the new covenant that was inaugurated in Christ's blood. They must join the church by faith in the Savior. And as Paul says, there is one olive tree, one people of God. They must join the church to be saved. And they will, Paul says, before Christ comes. And this offer of salvation is still wide open to them through faith in Jesus Christ. And this goes for all men everywhere, doesn't it? This goes for all of us. You personally must believe upon Christ or you will never be named among God's people. If you don't believe in him, if you don't turn from your sins and cast yourself upon the mercy of God found in Christ, the wrath of God abides on you. If you don't come to him in faith, you have no savior to save you from your sins. You have no redeemer to redeem you from the wrath of God that is to come against all men for our rebellion and wickedness. You, like the Jews, must repent and believe upon Christ. And if you will repent and believe upon him, he'll bring you into his people. He'll save you by his grace. I think, about, I think everyone in here professes faith in Christ. I'm looking around. I think I know you all. We proclaim this to the world, do we not? We don't just proclaim this to the Jews. You, all men, must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And God will bring you into this covenantal people that he's established through Christ. We, we preach this to the world. We hold open this offer just like we do to the Jews. God will bring you in. God will graft you into this olive tree. God will save you. God will bring you into his church. We must preach this. We must preach this. But back to the text here. The lights are going out in Israel. The old nation is over and its old covenant is over. And the light must go out in that nation and on that covenant, in order for the light of a new nation and a new covenant to shine brightly for the world to see. And again, this nation is the church, and this covenant is the new covenant. Let me read a beautiful text, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10. Speaking of the church, Peter says this. By the way, catch this. Peter's a Jew. Peter's a Jew, and he says this to the Gentile believers. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
We say it again, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And how did they receive it? Because they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and God brought him in or brought them into his covenant. With regard to the judgment in Jerusalem, as the apostle says in Hebrews 12, 26 and 27, the heavens and earth will be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. That is the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. Now we come to verse 26. And here the text gets brighter. For as negative as the first two verses are, because they are, they're judgment verses. The theme switches now, I think, to something glorious for those who love Christ. For those who don't love Christ, it's still a great terror. But for those of us who love the Lord, verse 26 is full of joy and triumph. There's a transition beginning from judgment to glory. Verse 26, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Jesus says that they... That's the Jews. They, those being judged, will see something. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The, wor the words of Jesus here, go ahead and turn to Daniel 7. These are an allusion, a, a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel speaks of the Son of Man. Jesus said they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Here's what Daniel says, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It's from this prophecy that Jesus gets his favorite self-designated title. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man more than he calls himself anything else in all the Gospels. Jesus, what's he doing by calling himself the Son of Man? He is identifying himself as the person that Daniel saw in his vision. And in that vision, in the first line, we read that the Son of Man goes up to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God. He came up to heaven where God is. And he came up how? With or in the clouds of heaven. That's how he came up. And what happens when, when the Son of Man, dare I say it to use Mark's language, when the Son of Man comes in clouds, what happens? Daniel says he's crowned king. He's crowned king. You say, what well, does it say he's crowned king? It says he's given a kingdom that never perishes. He's the king of it. If you're given a kingdom, you are the king. He's given sovereign dominion and lordship over everything that breathes and even everything that does not breathe. It's his. 
He's given utter sovereignty over the entire world, and he has given the promise by God himself that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. And Jesus is saying, the man Daniel saw is me, and they will see it. There is glory here. And you say, well, when did that happen? Brothers and sisters, this prophecy of Daniel was fulfilled when Jesus ascended to heaven. We're not, by the way, no, no offense to our, our dispensationalist brothers and sisters. We are not waiting for Jesus to be crowned king over some literal thousand-year kingdom at the end of time. No. He's crowned king now. Now. He has been seated at the right hand of God, and he is ruling over all things now. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Peter in Acts chapter 2, in the first gospel sermon ever preached by an apostle, says this has already been fulfilled. Jesus has been enthroned. Jesus is reigning over all things as the enthroned Son of Man. He already had this authority as God, but now as the God-man, he is ruling over all as the Messiah, as the Son of Man. So what Jesus is saying in verse 26 is that the Jews will see that he has been enthroned as the Son of Man. Catch this. In the destruction of Jerusalem, they will see they will see that he really is the Messiah. They will see that he really is the Son of God and that he really is, as we're going to sing later, Lord of all. They will see him coming in the clouds. That is, they will see that he has come into his kingdom just as he said he would. A, a, a brief aside here. There also may be a hint of judgment language from the Old Testament in these words as well. I personally think that, th that there are reference to Daniel 7. I think that's the strongest reference here. Uh, but some people will say, coming on the clouds. Well, know this, the clouds are not uh, a biblical teleportation device for the Lord of glory, right? Like, that's not how that works in the Bible. Uh, there are, I won't read them all to you for, to save time, Ezekiel chapter 30 verse 3, Nahum chapter 1 verse 3, Isaiah chapter 19 verse 1, and Psalm 104 verses 3 and 4. In all of those passages, God, when he comes in judgment, comes on the clouds. And God is not physically manifesting himself, obviously, when he comes on the clouds to judge these nations, but he metaphorically rides the clouds to execute judgments within history. So Jesus may be highlighting that it will be clear that it is he who has destroyed Jerusalem in his wrath. It'll be clear that he has come with the clouds to judge them. That may be what he's saying. I personally think that it's a reference to Daniel 7, but it's possible this could just be more judgment language. But either way, here's the glory. Either way, it will be abundantly clear that Jesus has come into his kingdom with great power and glory. Why do I say that? I say that because he has been able to execute this judgment against Israel because he is the Son of Man. Because he is the Son of Man. Either way, they will see and have to recognize that he is who he said he was because they're being judged just like he said that they would be. What a warning, by the way, to all the nations of the earth today. What a warning. Jesus is king. 
the world belongs to him and all will bow down at his holy feet or perish. As the psalmist says in Psalm 2, what's he say? Be warned and be wise. Kiss the Son. Come to him in faith. Submit to him in faith lest you perish. But brothers and sisters, again, our Lord is telling us something beautiful through judgment. He has been enthroned. Have you ever considered that? I hadn't before I studied um, the, the Olivet Discourse from this perspective. The destruction of Jerusalem is proof for all the world, for anyone who cares to see or take Jesus' words seriously, it's proof that he is who he said he was. He said he's the Messiah, and he said Jerusalem would be judged for rejecting him, and then it happened. How can he execute judgment on them if he's just dead like they said he was? He can't. But if he's alive as he said he would be on the third day, then he can judge because he's, he is who he said he is. The judgment of Israel is the proof that the Son of Man has been enthroned. Church, worship with me for a moment. Jesus is king. He's king. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of sinners. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is everything that he said he is. More than that, he is everything. Have you considered this? Brothers and sisters, we are right to worship him. The judgment against Jerusalem is proof. We are right to worship him. We are right to sing his praises. We are right to pray to him. We are right to give our total allegiance to him. We are right to preach his word to a world that hates him. We are right to live our lives for him and his glory. Why? Because he is who he says he is. He's the king. He's the son of man. And so we gladly and rightly Recognize him as the one who has been enthroned as king of all kings and lord of all lords. There's glory here. And now we come to our final verse. And here we see the glory of the church that comes from the enthroned Christ. Verse 27. And then he, that is the son of man, Jesus... And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So Jesus says after he executes judgment on Israel, then he will send out his angels to gather his elect from all over the earth. And many people take this verse to be a reference to the end of the world because Jesus mentions angels gathering people from all over the world. But again, I don't think that it must be interpreted that way. The word angel here in the Greek can mean messengers, not heavenly spirit beings. And actually, that Greek word for angel, it's angelos, has been, uh, has been used this way many times in the New Testament. And it always refers to human messengers. A couple examples, Mark chapter 1, verse 2, Behold, I will send my messenger. The Greek there is, I will send my angelos. It's referring to John the Baptist, a human messenger. James 2.25, talking about Rahab sending the messengers a different way, right? It's angeloi, same word, messengers. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, and to the angel of the church of Thyatira, it's to the pastor of that church, to the messenger, the one who speaks for God over that church. 
So again, there are, there are examples of this. We see this. So the context is what determines the meaning of the word. And in those contexts, it's clear messenger, not angel, is how this word should be understood. So then if I'm right, and angels should be understood as messengers here in verse 27, then Jesus is saying this. After Israel is judged and Jerusalem is destroyed, Jesus will send out his messengers. He will send out his preachers. And what will the result be? They will gather his elect from the ends of the earth. And they will gather them into his church through the preaching of the gospel. Or, and briefly, uh, the angels could be literal angels here, and that doesn't change our overall understanding of the text. You say, what do you mean the angels will, will help gather in the church? Well, Hebrews 1.14 says, are they, referring to the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So if Jesus means literal heavenly angels, he just means that they're going to aid his church in the preaching of the gospel in some kind of behind-the-scenes supernatural way. Now, I personally think that angels should be understood as messengers, should be understood as preachers, but either way, it doesn't understand how we, or rather, it doesn't undo how we understand the text. The main point is this. After Israel is judged, the enthroned Christ will send out his messengers or angels, and the result will be this. The elect will be gathered into his church. They'll be gathered together. And if they're going to be gathered together and it doesn't mean the end of the world, then it must mean they're gathered together into his church. And don't miss this. Jesus says the elect will be gathered from where? From the nations. From the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. All over the world his elect will be. Brothers and sisters, this is even more extensive of a gospel mission than Jesus spoke about in verse 10. There he spoke about preaching the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And now he's talking about something more extensive than that. To the four corners of the globe. Jesus, his church, is to be huge. The gospel is to be declared throughout the whole literal world. And he says his elect will be found throughout the entire world. The nations will indeed be compelled to come in. Brothers and sisters, do you see the glory here? Is the new covenant and the, and the New Testament church, is it not much, so much greater than Israel or the old covenant ever thought about being? Of course it is. And that's because Jesus is greater than everything in the old covenant. As God said to the Messiah in Isaiah 49.6, it is too light a thing for you, I'm paraphrasing, for you to only save the Jews. It's too light. It's too small. It's too small. The Messiah is too glorious. It's too light a thing that you would only save the Jews, but rather I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus is better, and the new covenant is better, and the church is better. I don't say that from a place of arrogance. I say that because Jesus is better. The gospel will go out into the world, and the elect will will be brought in. This is what will be the result of judgment upon Israel. Once the Jews are out of the way, Judaizing no longer messes with the church. Once the Jews are out of the way, persecution from Israel stops. Once the Jews have been judged, what happens? There comes to, there comes to be a clear distinction between the church and Israel, doesn't there? 
Christianity and Judaism are no longer viewed as essentially the same thing by the Gentiles, but Christianity is clearly for the world. And what happened after that? Through many persecutions and trials, the church has exploded, has it not? We're, how far away are we from Israel? And we're Christians. Just like Jesus said what happened. His preachers have went out throughout the entire world, starting with the 12, and it has grown, and it has grown, and it has grown. Dare I say, just as the psalmist said, Psalm 22, the crucifixion psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's not forget the end of it. The end of the psalm says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Is that not what has been fulfilled? The Jews were judged and Christ's gospel has went out to all the families of the nations, to the ends of the earth. Is this not what Jesus said in Luke chapter 13? And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Is this not what God said to Jesus in Psalm 2 verse 8? Ask of me, just ask to the enthroned Christ, just ask and I will make the nations your heritage in the ends of the earth, your possession. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what we have seen throughout history since A.D. 70. Through many sufferings and many trials, the church has been blessed by the enthroned head of the church, and it has grown. Our king is on the march. Psalm 110. He's ruling in the midst of his enemies. He's shattering the skulls of the kings of the nations. And know this, the end of Psalm 110 says this. He'll drink from the brook along the way. What does that mean? He will refresh himself. Why would he need to refresh himself? Because he won't stop until it's done. Until the whole world belongs to him, he won't stop until the work is finished. Our King Christ is on the march and he is saving his elect. And by his great power, he will save them all. Everything will happen just as our Lord said would happen. Now for application, I just want to put a few things to you very briefly. First, see the wrath of Christ and fear him. He judged Israel. He took their light away. And this is a picture of the judgment that comes upon all men apart from Christ. So fear him and then run to him for salvation. He will take you in. He will take in all who trust in him. A second thing, we see from this passage that Christ has been enthroned. He's been enthroned. Bow at his feet in your heart and worship him. Is he not worthy? As we're going to sing here in a little while, all hail, Redeemer, hail. Reverence him in your heart. He is the king. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Worship him. And then third, Know that those of you who have believed upon Christ, you are his people. You are his people. You are his people. By his grace, you have become his. As Peter said, once you were not his, but now by grace you are. The church is the people of God. Be glad in him. May God grant all, all in this room to fear Christ, to trust in him to save you to bow down at his feet and worship him and to glory in the Son of Man who is Lord of all. Amen. Let's pray.
Our great God, we thank you for this encouraging word that reminds us Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Help us to honor him as such. Help us to rejoice in him. Help us to be glad in him and help us to trust in him who rules over all things. Lord Jesus, you are glorious in our sight. And we thank you that by your spirit you have given us a sight of yourself this morning in the text. Let it sink deep into our heart that we might worship you always. We pray in your name. Amen.